Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to the Vax. I'm your host Lydia Green. Uh, Today we have Dr. Taylor Nichols who is board certified in emergency medicine and addiction and Nurse Emma who is one of my favorite TikTok personalities uh, who works uh, in emergency medicine as well. Uh, Welcome to the program guys. So today I wanted to touch on harm reduction because there is a lot of stigma um, surrounding that topic and a lot of misinformation. And as people know, I like to cover misinformation and and try to set the record straight. So uh, we'll go from here. Uh, Dr. Taylor, could you tell us a little about yourself and what you do? So I am an addiction medicine and emergency medicine physician. I work in the emergency department, working shifts, you know, treating whole range of conditions, anybody that that comes through the door of the emergency department. Um, In the addiction medicine space, uh, I work in a sort of harm reduction addiction medicine clinic um, in the residential setting and on an inpatient consult service. So uh, managing patients with substance use disorders who are hospitalized. Cool. Um, Nurse Emma, can you introduce yourself now? I always find it weird when you say Nurse Emma. Um, so I know. my name is Emma. <laughs> my name is Emma. I am a registered nurse with my specialization is in emergency medicine. Um, primarily my biggest thing is patient advocacy. There is a plethora of misinformation that honestly leads to patient harm on the public side and unfortunately on the medical side of things. So I've kind of taken my voice and my knowledge to really try to bring light to the areas that we're seeing with this misinformation that's ultimately leading harm to multiple marginalized populations. And that's kind of like my passion when it comes to healthcare. Great. So there's a lot of misinformation on um, harm reduction. What's the biggest uh, thing that most people know about when they think of harm reduction? Dr. Nichols. I would would say people understand that the concept is to try to reduce harm Um, And they think of things like overdose reversal, like with naloxone, for example, or Narcan as a harm reduction measure. Um, What I think people don't entirely grasp about the tenets of harm reduction and what harm reduction is, just to clarify, is like harm reduction was born of uh, by people who use drugs to try to protect their community from being harmed, including by the illicit drug supply um, being unsafe from society causing harm, including with, um, you know, sort of policies and uh, sort of um, through the, uh, you know, the, the, the police um, sort of state uh, in the way that we have punitive measures against people who use drugs. Um, and so the biggest premise of what harm reduction really is, is it's accepting that regardless of what anybody individually thinks about 
drugs or the people who use them is that licit and illicit drug use is part of our world um, and people are going to use substances. And so we can either choose to minimize the harmful effects of that or we can continue on our current path and condemn illicit or even licit or legal substance use. Um, but that the recognition that condemning such um, based on whatever views someone might hold causes more harm to people who use drugs um, and that we could actively be doing things to prevent that harm. And it's more than just reversing overdoses with Narcan, for example. Yeah. I, I, I like to say to people, you know, people can't quit drugs if they're dead. You know, they'll never get to that point where they're ready to make those changes if they don't make it to that point at all. Um, but a lot of people think that harm reduction is being complicit. What do you have to say about people that think that? Like, how can we reach them and say, like, no, it's not being complicit or enabling? That one is, I hear that one a lot. It's sort of a tough idea to, to wrap your head around. But what people need to understand is that substance use and substance use disorders are complex. They're multifaceted. They... People use drugs for a number of reasons or use substances. And that goes back, you know, as as old as, as we've existed, right? As long as we've existed, we have used things to alter our perception of reality. And that is why people use substances. Um, and no matter what framing people use or what morality they apply, um, that's going to continue to happen. And so... You know, Emma and I both went into medicine, into healthcare to help people and save lives. And we aren't doing that if we're just trying to win some sort of moral victory and say like, well, well, you know, um, you either don't use drugs or, or you die. Um, right. Like that's not helpful. Uh, that's specifically causing harm. Um, and so I, I think that whether or not you are enabling somebody to continue to use drugs, doing so safely in, in such a way that they don't die or are not harmed by society is important to recognize. And not everybody's going to accept that. I understand that. But I also don't think that um, harm reduction in and of itself is complicity or is enabling because we're enabling people to live, to get one, to continue to live, but to continue to live their lives with reduced harm without potentially sort of chronic diseases, for example, like syringe exchange, needle exchange. The premise of that as a concept is to reduce the possible transmission of things like bloodborne diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. We know that that works. We know that that reduces rates and helps us bring those rates down or potentially eliminate, you know, outbreaks um, or prevent them from happening in the first place. And so protecting people who are using drugs 
from that happening is a worthwhile goal. So I think if, if simply using drugs is your only metric, you're not going to stop people from using drugs. Drugs will always win the drug war. Um, the difference is whether or not you can accept that and recognize that we're causing harm by our only option being abstinence otherwise, right? And when, when we think of the framing of, of the expression, you know, dead friends can't recover, uh, I think that's worthwhile framing to think of like, okay, we should support people to prevent them from dying. But also abstinence doesn't have to be our only goal. It may not be everyone's goal. They may want to continue using substances or they may not be prepared to even have the discussion about re reducing their use, let alone quitting. Um, and that's also okay. Uh, we should recognize that people have autonomy and can make decisions. And as long as they're not harming other people in the process, then our goal shouldn't necessarily be to condemn them and say, you can't use substances. Um, so I, I think it's, I think part of it is the framing that people have to understand. And like, yeah, if you're talking about simply enabling the use of substances, yeah, we can, giving them things to continue using is allowing them or enabling them to use safely. They're going to continue using whether or not we are there to provide that support. But it's a recognition of that fact that illicit drug use will continue to go on. Um, we're just trying to make sure that we're reducing harm as much as possible. And I think that harm reduction extends to the rest of society too. We, you know, when we, we have needle exchange, you know, addicts are not um, alone. They're not a monolith. They, they have, uh, they have rich lives. Some of them, you know, uh, they're just very functional and they have families that, you know, that they go to. And when we can prevent um, them from, you know, let's say transmitting something like HIV to their spouse in term, you know, who could pr transmit to their, their children, you know, via childbirth and whatnot, like that, that does extend to other people in the community that are not necessarily the ones using the drugs. And so there's benefit there, I think, that people tend to overlook. Um, let's see, Emma... When you are, you know, working as a nurse, what sort of stigma do you see in, in the healthcare field? Oh, let on, me get the shopping list. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it's horrible. It's so horrible. Um, when I first got, like, I've been nursing for about five years. Um, and when I first graduated, I was one of those classic, like, shy quiet little nurses that just followed the crowd of all of your seniors, right? You, you learn about what people have taught you in school and what their practices. And I will never forget working on a medical unit with a patient who every like four hours, they would be hitting the button being like, I need my pain meds. I need my pain meds. And obviously when you're in the hospital, pain is an expectation. Like we expect people to have some form of pain this person had been previously labeled as a drug seeker. And I remember having conversations with staff members being like, I don't know, is she drug seeking? I don't know, should we be giving her these medications? 
like just really questioning the like the physician's order, like the physician ordered this medication to be given X amount of hours per patient's request. And that doesn't, that's no longer in my scope of practice as a nurse to withhold that medication unless the patient did not fit the criteria. So if they were, we all know that if they're lethargic, they're showing signs of overdose, obviously we're not going to give them something. But I remember seeing and hearing people talk about that and having these conversations and it felt like it felt gross. And as I kind of continued going into my practice and seeing like all of these different types of people, like the homeless population, the addiction population, mental health population, um, and just general people who don't have a history of addiction coming in, the conversation continued. It did not matter what population people belonged to, maybe what their past history was. Nurses and other healthcare professionals continued having that same conversation. I think she's faking it. They don't need this. How is he behaving this way, but saying his pain is like this? There's no reason for this person to be taking this medication. And it kind of came to this realization for me that that's complete garbage. Why are we judging people for their pain? It is not something we can measure. It's not something I can go up to a person and be like, oh, you're not screaming like a bear scalped you. You're clearly not in pain especially coming from my emergency background, I have seen patients scalped by bears who were not screaming in pain because adrenaline kicks in. Our body has a natural response and people's threshold of pain is different. And looking at that and hearing other healthcare professionals just speak that way about patients, I started to have to speak up to them and say, well, who are you to make that statement? How are we to make this assessment? Like it's from the medical standpoint, being somebody who sees these vulnerable populations and hearing how people speak about them, that is somebody's mother, that's somebody's father, that's somebody's loved one. That could be you. And to be completely honest, nurses and doctors and people who have accessible, like who are accessible to narcotics, we are not exempt from the rule of addiction. There has been multiple cases of healthcare professionals being put on leave or losing their positions due to addiction because it's so accessible and the mental health in our in like our industry is completely ignored. So when you take that expectation of, oh, well, it's accessible to them, look at how stressful their job is, but you're not holding that same standard to your patients, there's yeah. something wrong there. There's a huge disconnect and it comes from a poor education a lack of self-awareness, a lack of checking your bias, and a lack of keeping up with competencies. Like we know this information, it's available. We should be the standard to treat patients with dignity and respect. Exactly. I am a new nurse and I work uh, rural emergency um, uh, in one of my positions. And I have learned a lot from you, Emma. And I, when, when I am rating pain and someone says seven or eight, I, I put the bigger number down because <laughs> I, 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 I would rather um, treat someone's pain than assume they're not in pain and not treat their pain and let one person who was in horrible pain, you know, just exist like that. Um, you know, I, I, the way I see it is like, let's say they are quote unquote drug seeking, which I think everyone that's in a emergency room is drug seeking in one 
way or another, whether that's antibiotics or, or whatever they're looking for, everyone's there drug seeking. I mean, why else would you be there? But me giving somebody an opiate that already has substance use disorder isn't going to make their substance use disorder worse. It's not going to affect this. And me withholding that isn't going to cure them of their substance use disorder. And if I risk not treating their pain, that that's awful. That should never happen in, in medicine. People, you know, should have their pain treated and uh, if, if we can, but yeah, I've, I've learned a lot from you and, and I always, I always err on the side of, I better treat this person's pain if they meet the parameters to have their, their pain treated. It, it, it's no skin off my back to give something, somebody something that, has been prescribed. And I hear of nurses withholding, you know, medications when there's no reason to other than that they think that this person is, you know, drug seeking. Then, then their own their own biases. But anybody yeah. who is seeking treatment through pharmacologic means, which most most people who show up to the emergency department are, um, that is drug seeking. And so if we're going to continue to use the term, we need to apply it to all drugs, right? Like, all, I like to say all medications are drugs, not all drugs are medications. So yeah. we, you know, we have to apply that term equally. If we're going to stigmatize drugs, then, then we should keep in mind what we're talking about. Drugs are, all medications are drugs. Spores, or I mean, pain exactly. spores. Like how many people are there, you know, for a quote unquote sinus infection? Right. And right. it's viral, that is, that but they is want antibiotics, seeking, you know, right? it is like seeking treatment through pharmacologic means, but pain scores and the way we rate whether somebody is quote deserving or needs opioids for treatment is we have to keep in mind that's supposed to be subjective to that person. So it doesn't matter whether you feel that their pain, which you are not mm -hmm. experiencing is an eight or a nine or a 10 or, or higher than a 10. Um, that's not for you to judge. It's literally the reason we ever even started doing that was to rate someone against themselves to see if there is an improvement in their condition after we give an intervention. So if we give them a drug and they, you know, whether it's Tylenol mm -hmm. or opioids and they have a score that's a 11 and it goes to a eight, that's an improvement in their pain. It's not for you to decide whether their pain is an 11 or an 8. It's for them to decide. And you're, the goal is to rate their pain against their pain. Um, I once had a patient who was a, you know, an elderly woman who came in uh, and said, looked very uncomfortable, but said her pain was a 7. Um, and I asked her, um, she had, was brought in by her son. So I asked her if she, you know, how she would rate that, you know, in comparison to like her other instances of severe pain, like childbirth. And she said, Oh, I had three boys, uh, unmedicated. And that was like a four. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, okay. So we're like just talking sort of a oh different scale than your average person. Um, but right. It's subjective. It's like, that person had yeah. a kidney stone. She was doing what we sort of like joke about. is like the kidney stone dance where you're just like constantly writhing in pain. And a lot of people would rate that as like 10 out of 10, which is also valid. And for her, it was a seven. And then we gave her medications to improve that. And it went down, right? But like you rate it against 
their themselves yeah you can't you're not in somebody's body it's not your place to judge and you aren't solving the problem of addiction by withholding medications you're only making someone suffer and i don't think people recognize that they're like just like emma said like you aren't gonna solve their substance use disorder in that moment by not giving them opioids the only thing that you may be doing is preventing somebody who is opioid naive from being exposed to opioids to then potentially develop a substance use disorder. But if somebody already has a substance use disorder, you're not helping anyone by not treating them, right? People with substance use disorders can have and often do have valid reasons to have pain, including withdrawal, by the way. Like if somebody comes in and withdrawal, that is uncomfortable, right? So like treat them. so painful. Don't, so, you know, the, these are all yeah. things that I, <laughs> that I see just like Emma does all the time. I see the stigma. I encourage my colleagues to try to be more understanding, do better. I would encourage all of healthcare to do better at this and, and, and face sort of the, the tough reality of like, we are the system causing harm and we should reconcile with that. Um, and and sit with that sort of discomfort of recognizing that we're causing harm to people who use drugs and think about how we could and should be doing better. Um, you know, we are one of the big pillars in society of that is causing harm to these, to these patients. And the stigma around opioids affects people that don't have substance use disorder. I remember being on my clinicals for uh, surgery and I worked the ortho unit and I had people that were afraid to take their, their pain treatment, which negatively affects their recovery. So they'd be like, no, I I just want Tylenol. And they just had a hip replacement. And I'm like, that's not going to do anything. And you need to mobilize right away you know, and but they're so they've heard so many negative things about opioids that they're afraid to use it for their pain after an, something like an elective surgery. And I tell them, I'm like, you chose this surgery. This is an elective surgery. And part of this recovery is managing your pain so you can mobilize. This surgery was designed to make your life better, but it's not going to work if you don't do the things you're supposed to do. And um, yeah, I, there, I had quite a few patients that were terrified to take the, the, the pain medication. And a lot of that comes down to like misinformation. No, no, it's okay. Yeah. So totally fine. So like what I was just saying is that it comes down to misinformation, right? So we recognize as a healthcare system that if we misprescribe and overprescribe as like Taylor, you could definitely like you're the prescriber, you know more about this than anyone. Um, without the proper education and titrating somebody off a of medication, it could lead to addiction without the proper supports. So, but if you have to have that moment of education, and then if you refuse to treat the now potential addiction, people seek unsafe medications elsewhere to receive the same high, and you have this cycle continuing. So you can either start it at the beginning with the education and harm reduction at the start of the interaction, or we can deal with it later on. But people with that misinformation because of the epidemic that we're seeing now they're afraid. And because of that, we're going to see an e- the other side of it of people having negative health outcomes. In terms of 
of um, of like with, with uh, sort of acute pain too um, is chronic pain, right? People with chronic pain suffer um, because we're the the pendulum really swung. Now we had a period where there was some overprescribing by people who were just uh, you know using any reason to for seeking profit motives from essentially selling off their ability to prescribe opioids um, and f- trying to flood the you know and and and, mm-hmm. and were in part responsible. But the vast majority of prescribers of, of physicians and advanced practice providers were not really involved in significant overprescribing. And the pendulum has swung so strongly against the use of opioids because of the potential for the development of opioid use disorder. But if we, the, the fear is around that, but if we understood substance use disorders as these multifaceted conditions, right? It, it, it's born of, of both genetics, right? There is, we know that there's a genetic component to developing substance use disorders. There's, you'll often see people with family histories of substance use disorders um, who develop substance use disorders. We, we can track in some cases up to 25% of whether or not somebody develops substance use disorder down to specific genetic codes. And you have the, the, the environment in which somebody lives and somebody is raised. We know that like higher childhood adverse event scores are directly related to higher likelihood of developing a substance use disorder. And then is the exposure factor. Like if you are not exposed to a substance, you won't develop a substance use disorder to it, but people are exposed to substances all the time for a variety of reasons. One is opioids for pain management and that's okay if we didn't view developing substance use disorder as some sort of like death sentence, like it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And we instead approach people who do develop opioid use disorder with, with love and compassion and seek like harm reduction as a framework from which we should be treating these people, then it wouldn't seem so problematic. The only reason that we view it as so problematic is we don't understand and we don't have compassion for people who use drugs. It's the only explanation. The only reason we could ever accept a number like in the U.S., 110,000 people dying from overdose in the last year was is because we don't adequately value their lives. If we did, we would do something about it, but we aren't. We aren't addressing the systemic issues at hand. And if we approach all of this, including like people with chronic pain and prescribing them opioids and like, oh no, they might develop a substance use disorder because they physio, like physically become dependent on opioids, which we know happens. They are, yes, then at higher risk of developing substance use, uh, opioid use disorder because of exposure, repeated exposure. But if they don't, then that's also okay. It's okay that they continue to use opioids for their pain management. But the problem then also comes like within that space, within the chronic pain community, for example, is the stigmatization of people who use drugs and people with opioid use disorder. Um, and so I think if we, we, that's another frame that we need to address is, is that level of harm. And I, I've seen you talk 
I've seen you do TikToks where you're discussing with people in the chronic pain community. And I think there's a lot of misplaced anger with the people who struggle with substance use disorder. Uh, I think the anger is, should be placed at the system that allows people to be judged at all, whether they're, they have chronic pain or whether they have a legitimate substance use disorder issue, both people should be handled with compassion. But the anger seems to be misplaced. Like if they, if the drug addicts didn't exist, then my doctor would take my pain more seriously. And it, that, that the, the issue is the doctor not taking the pain seriously, not the, the person who's addicted to drugs, you know, but it's, it's misplaced anger. You know, it's, it's so true. Yeah. And like, you bring it back into the healthcare setting, like, me being your first point of contact, you come into the emergency room, you're like, oh, hi, there's a nurse there. I have no idea who you are. Unless I've interacted with you a million times, because we do have some frequent flyers, I have no clue of your history. I can't, how am I going to look at you, take what little bit of information I have, like I have available to me, and make a judgment call on whether you have an addiction or a chronic pain? Because we know that chronic pain patients come in because their pain might have an exacerbation. That doesn't mean that we look at them and be like, oh, well, they're already taking X, Y, and Z for their pain. This is this is seeking now. That's not appropriate because pain patients can have increased pain. Same side of the coin, like the situation, like the same side of the coin, people with addiction, they're not exempt to pain. So they can also have an exacerbation of pain and come to the ER. Heck, they can just be coming to the emergency department for a safe of an accessible type of medication, but how am I going to judge them for that? How do I, with my small point in time connection with you, look at you and make a clinical judgment? Because in either way, I'm harming you, but I'm, am I harming you because I'm refusing to treat you and care for you because you have an addiction? Is that where I'm holding that stigma? Or am I harming you because I'm telling you to deal with your chronic pain specialist because I don't want to deal with you receiving pain management for your chronic pain. Exactly. Both communities they, are being harmed and, in the and, same way and, for the same reason. You know, we don't. What what like, I think people fail to understand about like the healthcare system and emergency departments in general, it's like some people will say, well, you should make that judgment based on the information in the chart. And one, like that misunderstands how EHRs work and that they're not all, they're not, isn't certain levels of interoperability, but also if I see that you, you know, say somebody has diagnosed you with uh, opioid addiction before, how do I, like, who's to say that that's not what we refer to as like chart lore? Like somebody said that once, maybe out of stigmatizing, and that that's just been carried forward. Like I, it's, that is not for me to stigmatize somebody and then make a judgment and say, I'm not going to treat you. I should still treat the person in front of me based on the clinical situation at hand. And it could also be a person with chronic pain having an acute pain exacerbation. And I shouldn't say for that acute exacerbation, you should go see your chronic pain specialist because that's not how acuity works, right? Acute, their acuity means like you go to the emergency department for acute treatment and simply telling them we're not going to treat you is also unhelpful. So we should just help people, the person in front of us based on their clinical circumstances, 
and then have them, yeah, sure, refer them to their specialist. Let their specialist know that they were in the emergency department or whatever. But that's you should still treat them because that's what we're there for, right? Like they came through the door. <laughs> right. Emergency medicine, people. We cannot get mad at our population. <laughs> we're getting mad at people for coming in for their point of care because they can't get to a doctor. And then we're getting mad at them for coming in for what we're designed for. Like, we can't have it both ways. <laughs> yeah. And chronic illness, yeah, it's chronic and you have a specialist or whoever took it, but it does flare. Like, it's not a linear progression. It's not static. You can have, like states of remission where you're feeling great and then all of a sudden you are stressed and now you're having a horrible flare and that doesn't mean like oh it's a chronic illness you wait a month to see your doctor for you know for many diseases you need to see someone right away if you're flaring because there's risks to your health so yeah and, and the people that get upset for people who have chronic illness visiting the emergency department is it's crazy to me because they can have an acute flare, even though it's chronic. I like to compare substance use disorders as like a chronic relapsing remitting medical condition, as we understand substance use disorders to be. And the other thing that we recognize as a chronic relapsing remitting medical condition is like autoimmune condition. So compare like multiple sclerosis. When people are having a flare of multiple sclerosis and they have like new neurologic changes, changes that we can see on an exam, like, oh, now like my arm is numb or I, or I feel weak. And we can see increased weakness. Or we can do an MRI and see new lesions on their spinal cord or on their brain. We like jump on that and we start to immediately treat with, you know, steroids or immunomodulators to try to reduce that flare and reduce the, the potential harm to that person, right? Well, we should do the same with things that we can't necessarily see or don't necessarily understand, like substance use disorders, like chronic pain. Like we should, even if we don't treat them, we shouldn't be there stigmatizing like, oh, well, I don't see your chronic relapsing condition, uh, so I'm not going to treat it. Because when you're, in one case, you're seeing the harm, you're seeing the lesions on the MRI, and in the other case, you're just judging based on the fact that you don't see it or you don't understand their condition. Um, and so we need to do better in terms of making sure we understand those things correctly and appropriately and that we're treating these patients appropriately. And potentially when you give, say you give somebody who has opioid use disorder and is in withdrawal and is having significant discomfort, you can stabilize them and use that as an opportunity to say, hey, you know, I, I've seen that you've come in here a bunch of times before and I'm concerned about X. You can have that conversation. You can say, I'm worried that you have opioid use disorder and we can treat that, you know, with, like there are supports for you um, and help get that person into treatment if that is what they want. But oftentimes we miss those opportunities because of our own judgment with the irony, right, of like, well, we wish those people just wouldn't come to the ER and they would just get treatment. But then we're unwilling to even have those conversations about having the ability to treat people with substance use disorders. So it's like, you know, like had been mentioned already, like we can't have it both ways. If people are coming to the emergency department for acute needs, that is the opportunity to have 
interventions on those needs and we should be utilizing those opportunities. Speaking of treatment, how do we treat yeah. substance use disorder? What are the evidence-based ways of treating? It, it's a great question. It totally depends on the substance. Um, but we know that um, for opioid use disorder, for example, using instead of high-potency, short-acting opioids like uh, pharmaceutical opioids, anything from morphine to fentanyl, um, using long-acting opioids, so methadone is a full opioid, what we call full opioid agonist, um, where it fully activates the opioid receptors, but it has a really long half-life, um, or buprenorphine, which is a partial opioid um, or partial opioid agonist and has a, also has a really long half-life, um, are both options for treatment of opioid use disorder. It helps manage both cravings and it can be long-term treatment. Depends on um, depends on the individual. Some people don't want to take them for long periods of time. Some people can take them for as long as they want. Frankly, for the rest of their life, if that's what they need, it helps in terms of like craving management. It can help with you know, especially mm -hmm. when people have sort of an overlap of chronic pain and um, and opioid use disorder, then they, you know, the, they'll continue to need opioids to manage their pain as well, uh, then that's also a great option because it's long acting. It helps manage cravings and think, particularly in the case of buprenorphine, it has such a high binding affinity or it binds to the opioid receptor very strongly such that it would kick off any other opioids or block other opioids from, from binding to the receptors from having an effect. So, so people, who are taking buprenorphine, for example, okay. for treatment, um, if they have a return to use, uh, say they, you know, use fentanyl, it won't bind and it won't kill them. They, they won't overdose and die. And so that's one of the advantages of a treatment like buprenorphine. Um, methadone also has a high binding mm -hmm. affinity, which is part of what makes it effective and what makes it effective for pain management as well. Um, so those are those. That's an example of like for opioids that that's um, that's an option. And then we have treatment for um, alcohol use disorders, stimulant use disorders, um, you know, nicotine use disorder. Frankly, like nicotine replacement therapy, nicotine patches and lozenges and gum. Those are treatment yeah. for a substance use disorder. People don't think of that the same way, but it, because because smoking is so sort of like ingrained mm -hmm. in society, they don't moralize it the same way, but, but Chantix or, uh, or, you know, we use a bupropion or Wellbutrin. Those are both FDA approved for smoking cessation. Those mm -hmm. are medications for addiction treatment <laughs> or MAT, uh, just like buprenorphine and methadone are MAT. And, um, people don't realize is that <laughs> yes. if you look at alcohol, a bar, yes, you are using a drug instance, in is, a safe space is a consumption that is, site. That is regulated. And <laughs> as a server, as a server, I'm monitoring people's usage yes. of alcohol yep. and cutting yes. them off when they've had too much. Um, I also have to make sure they call a taxi instead of getting in their car. I have to make sure I offered them all these different yes. things. 
because I am legally responsible if they hop in their vehicle and mow down a family later on. Um, so yeah, like people don't yes. realize, but a bar is, you know, ha- a harm yes. reduction, uh, policy in place, you know, when, when servers are given responsibility for, for the patrons that are using alcohol. Um, yeah, but there's a reason why they need things like pro serve. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's crazy. It's, I find it so interesting. And again, like it ties right back into that stigma that, like, there are all these safe options to help manage addiction, like Taylor was saying, and that we have them incorporated into our everyday life that's just like, eh, oh, Martha's trying to quit smoking again. Oh, Bob's down at the bar, right? Like, we have all of this, and no one bats an eye. But these are also, like, invi- you can have an invisible addiction, and people, won't, they're like, oh, no, it's fine. Um, like, I remember bath salts in, like, the early 2000s when that kind of came out, and mm-hmm. it was the business drug, but nobody cared because it was a quick high and they were able to function or something, like, right, something along those lines. And, but I'm like, why is that okay? But then people are stigmatizing all the others, addic- all these other addictions. And then why are these addictions not okay, but smoking and drinking are fine, and people are causing harm to, like, adolescents with these. Like, we have you're actually hurting people around you while you're consuming these. Like my mother has tried quitting smoking like my entire life. And I have trauma from her trying to quit smoking. I'll never forget her in a nicotine withdrawal, smacking a door and breaking it in half with her bare hand. Like these are things that occur, but nobody bats an eye because it's considered normal within society. And then when you have people like on the streets or dealing with addictions with say like fentanyl and maybe one of those more like high alert drugs that trigger drugs, so to speak, that people are like the hot topics. Um, you can be actively managing them either like with naloxone or other types of medications like you had earlier described. And that's bad. It's bad to be allowing them to live in an addiction and give them these safe controlled substances so that they can, can potentially either end that addiction or live successfully with an addiction Maybe they can change their life, but they, their addiction looks different for everybody. It's not a linear thing. That's and there wrong. are people that can function, you know, that it brings them to a state of being able to, you know, maintain relationships with their loved ones, hold down a job, and they use, you know, Suboxone treatment to manage their addiction. You know, isn't that good enough? Like, I don't care if you need suboxone to manage your substance use disorder and now you're a productive member of society but there are there are people that are just so you know it's all or nothing they they their definition of recovery is just don't use but i think recovery is is coming to a state where you can have positive relationships in your life and be a functional member of society and if they need you know something like uh so, uh, methadone to maintain that, then, then who cares? Yeah, I think like, I, I, I think don't that's personally one thing care. That's important, and I'm I, I sort of am cautious around my use of the term recovery because it, recovery implies that you are recovering something that you had previously, um, and so not everybody has something to recover, right? Not everybody starts at like the same baseline, um, and and you know we like to think of clinical conditions in terms of like they're in remission or they're not. So I'll often talk about substance use disorders in terms of remission, but recovery is an important concept in terms of like substance use disorders in general, 
because the idea is to recover if you did start with good healthy relationships and a healthy relationship with your family or with a family then recovering those relationships is important that's an important aspect of you know of being able to move forward as that like healthy productive member of society that you're talking about um and not everybody has a, a family to turn to um and so you can't recover something you don't have but but if you if you have that and those are things that you lost you lost a job you lost um your relationships with your family or your friends or your partner um recovering those things is important and that's an important part of treatment and so things that help keep people stable help them manage their cravings help them maintain without going through withdrawal even if it's just that then that's fine as long as you are able to recover the things that you had and hopefully move forward to gain things that you didn't have potentially um right like i think i think when i talk to patients um about sort of this concept what we what had previously been called medication assisted treatment and i hated that term because we don't say that about anything else like uh we don't medication assist the treatment of diabetes for example we just treat it um and so that's why we've gone away from that term and we've gone to medications for addiction treatment using the same acronym of mat but when I talk to patients about like, oh, well, you know, I work in a low barrier clinic. We don't make people go to counseling, go to therapy, go to groups. We offer those though. Um, and, and a lot of our patients do utilize those services, but they'll ask me because a lot of them, them have had experiences in other treatment settings where they're required to go say like five times a week initially or whatever to their, their, um, to counseling say, look, the therapy is just like getting your life back in order, you know, recovering those relationships that you've had previously that you came to us because you said that you like lost um, or your job or whatever it is. That's the therapy that's going to make you feel good and productive and feel positive and more positive about yourself. Therapy is a bonus. Like, frankly, I always say like everybody would benefit from going to therapy at baseline right whether you have a substance use disorder or not everybody would benefit from, mm -hmm. from therapy mm -hmm. um but the goal with medications for addiction treatment is just to get them to baseline and if you're at baseline therapy is a bonus uh but at baseline you can recover your relationships and you can you can maintain that job and all of those things right um and so really what we should aspire to in society is to support people to do all of those things, regardless of what their medical conditions are, whether it's because they have diabetes and they're struggling with their blood sugar mm -hmm. management, we should help get them stabilized so they can continue to move forward with a normal functional life and decrease the future harm to them. It's the same concept. Yeah. And, and, with diabetes too, you're going to have a variable right. variability in what management looks like, because some people are going to manage their diabetes perfectly, and some it's people just not that easy. it's just yeah. not in them. <laughs> to like, and I'm sure you know you've seen it in the emergency room, Emma. Is like yeah. you have people that you know are very careless with 
their diabetes and we still treat them and we still do our best for them. And we still, you know, offer education in, in hopes that someday they turn it around. But some people are going to struggle with managing any illness. Um, I do have an opinion on like mm-hmm. <laughs> abstinence only programs like AA. Oh, I hate that. And a lot no. of people oh, have this idea that that's the only way. And statistically, no. those programs are yep. are not that great in terms of helping people with addiction. And it seems to have been made this gold standard of, of providing treatment for, for people with addiction issues. And I just, I know people, like I have family members that have addiction issues that AA did not help them. And in fact, in some ways, like watching them struggle with AA, it seemed to set them up for failure because when you fall, you fall hard. And it's almost like any of your efforts mm-hmm. before that, you know, you have your chip, oh, I got, you know, three yep. months clean. And then yep. now I have to start all over again because I had one yes. bad night. I better make that bad night mm-hmm. count. And now mm-hmm. that bad night is like a week long bender, but- <laughs> you know? And I, this is the this is the pattern I've seen with that's lots the, of people. That that's you know, a perfect explanation of how things like AA cause harm yeah. within the recovery community and actually increase and perpetuate the stigma against people who use substances. They perpetuate that stigma themselves, um, and they 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 like to say like, oh well, it's in the big book that we don't stigmatize medications um, for medical treatment but they don't recognize substance use disorders as, as medical conditions. And so they don't necessarily recognize like buprenorphine or methadone as medications for opioid use disorder, for example. Um, even if people, some individuals say that they are okay with that at large, you know, uh, NA or AA don't sort of um, condone that as acceptable they believe in this idea of like willpower and, and, um, and, and that, and that's incredibly harmful. Um, but the idea that of like, you have to go back to day one is such a great example of like, uh, why of why that is so problematic and why this, like, you know, I don't think anything, um, if people find benefit from, things like AA or 12 step, that's fine. I think some of the the concepts uh, are, are generally good sort of of the steps, etc. But I think that if you really want people to recover, then, you know, the, the community aspect of it is the most important part. Um, the dogma and the stigmatizing is unhelpful. But I think the one successful thing that AA does is it forms community of people in recovery, of people who are in remission, so that they can have a safe place to have those conversations. Um, the the other problem that I you know I know about in AA is it becomes sort of a of a, like a one-upsmanship of like who actually like oh well you weren't actually an alcoholic then if you weren't doing xyz or i've had this many years and so you know because i've been in uh, in recovery longer than i have more credentials essentially um but like it, it the idea that there's a there's a TikTok, um uh and I, i'm blanking on the 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 person's handle but he has a great video and i'm guessing you've both seen it of uh 
you know, he's like running along the, the, uh, in front of somebody's house and he like slips and falls. And then he's like, plays the character like in the front yard. He's like, Hey, what, what happened, man? Are you okay? He's like, I, I, I slipped and I can't, I can't get up. And he's like, well, just, you were running. Just like, keep going. He's like, I don't know how. Um, and then, you know, he plays like multiple characters. He's like, he doesn't know how to get up. Like a guy driving by or whatever. And he's like, you just get up and keep going. Like you just like you, but just like you were doing, yeah. he like stands up. He's like, yeah, oh, I, like, I guess I can. Right. And it's like this whole analogy of the like 12 step AA mentality of like, you have to start at day one, but like nobody does that. You haven't lost the work that you've already done. So this idea that somehow you go back to square no. one, you have to turn in your chip and you take your, you know, your, your day one chip again, like it's so harmful um, because of that. Right. Because you, the work that you've already done on yourself is, yeah. is valid and should, should continue to be recognized. And you should appreciate that as, as the individual, you should appreciate that for yourself. Like, Say you've you've been sober for fifteen years and you ha you like yeah. return to using even if it's just for a night like you've done fifteen years of work on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't have to say I've only been sober for a day. Like, like yeah. that fifteen years really doesn't just run away. It's not just gone. Yeah. Like it yeah. it still counts mm -hmm. for something, and mm -hmm. I feel like this plays into yep. that all or nothing mentality. Yep. Right, yeah. you have to do all of it or none of it. Like there is no in between, and it, that in itself is harmful. And we see that same like premise like placed upon multiple areas yeah. in like healthcare, like weight. It's all or nothing, right? Um, addiction. It's all or nothing. Yeah. Um, exercise. It's all or nothing. It's very harmful because it's eliminating yes. the belief yes. that nothing is linear. Yeah. Like everything is. It's a wavelength, right? Like healthcare life everything you have ups and downs like why are we saying oh well every day we have ups and downs that's okay but then when it comes down to like actual like problems we're like no you have to it is an all or nothing you either quit smoking you quit drugs you quit drinking or you don't right like there there has to be that middle ground because that's the reality of just the human experience and just human nature in general yeah. So I, I just, it, it infuriates me, which is why things like the 12 step program of AA, the concept of restarting your chip on day one, when in reality, you can say like, good job, Eddie. Like, I recognize this was hard for you. Do you want to talk about maybe what got you to that moment? Don't forget about this, right? Like you're completely ignoring all about the history because it's all or nothing. And that just, it just grinds my gears. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to bring up a program I, I really really thought was great in Edmonton that the conservative government got rid of uh, after the NDPs were done. The NDP had a program in Edmonton where pregnant women with substance use disorders um, could go and listen to their baby's heartbeat. And the women that did that used less drugs while pregnant. And I just cannot believe they stopped doing this program. And I, that, I that to me is like that. one of my favorite examples of harm reduction. I think it's like, beautiful. Yeah. And um, but, I hope, I hope more places start doing that. Cause I think 
again, it's this all or nothing mentality that, you know, you, you have to just be perfect. And, and I think perfect is the enemy of good. And, and if a person is using less drugs while pregnant, because they can go connect and realize that, you know, that there, there is, you know, a baby that they're going to have one day that they have to protect. Cause it's easy to kind of remove yourself from that. I think when you're, uh, you know, a vulnerable person, was the rationale because they're like, oh, well, these women didn't stop using drugs completely and therefore. Ugh. Yeah, I think so, because it, it, it ended when the conservatives took over. And so, of course, it's it's right. So from- then what's that? What's the alternative? Like, nope, we'd rather that you just keep using all the drugs and not use less of them because we don't want to be seen as. Yep providing support for people to use less i i i just it boggles my mind when people do things like that it's like the 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 alternative to them is just they it it, truly the only way you can recognize is they don't care about the lives of these people because it that's the only explanation right you could you, you all of these things when it comes down to harm reduction all it means is you care about the lives of people who use drugs because to me, you care about the lives of people, period. People who use drugs are people, end of story. And so if you do care about their lives and you care about the lives of their developing child, right? Like there's purportedly, you know, conservative, pro-life, all of these things, which, you know, we can, that's a whole different, you know, discussion. But, but like, if you care about that developing oh, I know. fetus- then you should care about them using less drugs and it above, above some moralizing about, well, you either use drugs or you die. Like it's just genuinely absurd to me. Oh, they would rather, they would rather have a program that puts those women in prison. Um, so Taylor, the, the UCP government that is in Alberta right now, uh, to put it into context that you might understand, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, is they just invited and had dinner with Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, Tucker Carlson, <laughs> like, I, they just, they are all for it. They actually just released <laughs> um, policies. At, it's horrible. They're... They are eliminating healthcare across the board. They're eliminating harm reduction. Mm. They just made it so that trans youth can't receive medical care um, for gender dysmorphia. By they go a whole bunch of stuff, and and when it comes to those conversations, like it's it is its own conversation, completely respectfully. But when you look at it from like a harm reduction, yeah. you're like, okay, she's I can on see record saying both sides of the coin. But there's you're causing harm with this because you're only recognizing one side of it. She's on record saying helpful. our premier, she said that if you get stage four oh cancer, God. it's because you, oh it's God. your fault. And there was things you could have done before you got that. And now you're, you're, you know, basically using our healthcare doll. Like there are children with stage four cancer. What is the she talking about? Like, the same week she made that statement, I actually had a patient come in and in my care who's diagnosed with stage four cancer. Six months right. prior, he had had a full physical and it was not caught. So, and this is a very active, this was a very healthy individual. Um, 
and it grind it was me I was so angry because now this person who just got a life like essentially a life sentence um for the type of cancer they were dealing with also has to live with the fact that their government is saying this is your fault when that's not how cancer works this premier also is on record for stating that the most discriminated against population <laughs> is those of the unvaccinated what nature during COVID-19. <laughs> I, I know it's just, there's no harm reduction. It's just very she much catering to a very specific group. She was on record saying her hero was Ron DeSantis. I wonder <laughs> if she's ever heard him speak. Like, what? Like, like, <laughs> oh god yeah they sound similar I, so I do, probably um, <laughs> ridiculous yeah and I, well so so that that brings up an interesting point though like this extends yeah. beyond just drugs too i mean this is we're talking about a government from the sounds of it and 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 the similar similarly among the conservative party here too that is very um they they take this individual nature to an extreme, uh, you know, individual liberty and all of that, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is, is also perfectly valid, but they're taking that to the extreme of saying like, you're responsible for everything that happens to you, um, including your own medical conditions, including having terminal cancer. Um, all of those things are incredibly harmful and incredibly dangerous. And those are the, like the application of the concepts of individual liberty to, medicine to healthcare at large are will always be problematic regardless of the particular issue at hand whether it's drugs whether it's cancer um whether it's diabetes yeah public health is a public it's in the name it's a public good it is not an individualized plan it is a public it is for the public good and it is it is not a single individual liberty. You're not free to choose what public health means to you. It is public health. So that the, the, these concepts um, of yeah. individual liberty applied at large will always be problematic. And that and that's true for drugs. And that's true sort of across the board in healthcare or in 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 public needs and public goods in general. So. I think, you know, I, I think you kind of um, solidified that point quite well there, actually, it, with with this being applicable to, you know, to saying like stage four cancer, right? We shouldn't be blaming people for using substances, just like we shouldn't be blaming people for having cancer. I mean, gosh. I think it's a, it comes from a place of that's not going to happen to me. I would never. And so that means you should never and would never. Like, I think people like to look at problems and go, that's their fault because then it kind of makes them feel safe from it ever happening to them. Like the healthcare situation as well is that because it's, it's honestly, unfortunately made a political, like it's a political statement now as opposed to keeping our patients in the center of care, which patients, as we've spoken about before, are their own autonomous beings that can make decisions for themselves based off of the information available to them. But now we have people, uh, regardless if they're in power or not, but we have loud voices 
that are coming in and they're making these very harmful statements based off of their own ideology, ignoring the facts and just simply ignoring autonomy. Like there is that complete disregard of like, as we've said, like people, like they don't care about anyone else about them, but themselves, which is in Canada, we're seeing a lot of uproar about public health care. Like we don't want publicly funded health care, rah, rah, rah. When in reality, they're also the ones utilizing it, but it's because they want that individuality and that belief that they're only responsible for them. When in the truth, it's a community and I'm not going to tell person A that they should do something with their health care just because it's how I feel. But if person A tells me one thing, I'll support them and give them the information. And that's missing in healthcare, And then that's leading to further stigma and it's destroying all of the good that has been done for a lot of these vulnerable populations. And that's evident with the Alberta government. Yeah. it's uh, What I see happening is they want to like crash public health care so bad that the average person who has benefits begs for privatization. I and, don't um, want privatization and I have benefits. they want that's what they want they want people to beg for private health care so because what happens is again people think about themselves so they'll go well I have benefits so I'll be fine I want this now because the system is so awful that I can't see a doctor within a month you know so I, I think that's what they're trying to do is just make it so unusable that that people you know the middle class begs for private health care but it's going to make it even more unusable. Like I, that's what gets me is that I don't I see how people can't see that problem because we can look at our neighbor in the States. And of course, Taylor can attest to this as well. Him being in the States, you can't access health, like at healthcare. Like the, one of the reasons why the ERs from my understanding, from what I've been reading in the States being overrun is because people can't afford to get to a doctor because your co-pays and your insurance are so high and the cost of living is so high, they can't afford private insurance. So they go to an ER because they can't be denied treatment. Just like in Canada, same type of situation, but a different problem. We can't get into our family doctors. So they go to the emergency department. So how is making us pay for privatized healthcare going to correct that? Especially when the taxes are already similar. Like the States mm-hmm. ends up paying more for healthcare than Canada does just the way that their system is. So how are we like, how is it justifiable to make people who are like like people on the streets, like homeless people, how are they going to afford it? People who are already struggling paycheck to paycheck, who can't afford health insurance, how are they going to afford it? Middle class, how are middle class going to afford it? If health, if you have to spend a thousand plus dollars a month on benefits, then a copay. I can assure you, coming from the states, and and to explain a little bit, we do have a very fragmentized healthcare system. There are public and private insurances. Public insurance is, is, you know, we have what's called Medicaid, um, which is specifically for um, essentially for the for the poor. It's uh, if, if states have extended their Medicaid um, benefits, it's up to 400 percent of the federal poverty level, um, which is decided you know, by the federal government um, can qualify for Medicaid, which gets free uh, health care. But the network of providers who accept Medicaid is often very small because reimbursement is low. And so then they can't get into the, see their regular doctors. They can't get into clinics. But even if you have private insurance, 
it's not just about the copays and all that. Even though you're paying large deductibles for for the private insurance, um, your premiums, then you're paying deductibles on that, and you're paying a copay every time you go to the, see the doctor. Even if you can afford to do all of those things, you are still stuck with a system in which you still have difficulty accessing primary care and let alone specialty care. Um, but there just is a shortage of primary care doctors. There are long waits to access primary care. And so even if you can pay for it, you still have limited access unless you can pay even more for say like concierge, what we would call concierge medicine or, or a specialty like private practice where you pay extra to have essentially a, to, to have that access, to have a retainer of, uh, to have a, a physician sort of contracted to, to be able to see you. Um, and so there are setups like that, but again, we're talking about the people who are, who have sort of the most resources having access to generally good care, but that provides significant limitations on the care that anyone else is able to access. Um, and that operates on this assumption that, uh, that somehow like people think that they're going to be the person with the resources, even though most of them are not, frankly. Um, and I guess assuming that someday maybe they will, or, or the hope that they will. Um, but, but the, the reality is that most of the system doesn't work for most of the patients. You have a small fragment of people who the medical system works for and does so well. Um, but in general, it doesn't work and it is too expensive. And yes, we pay already fairly high taxes, have a fairly high cost of living. And then if you throw in on top of the taxes, what healthcare premiums look like, what did it cost just to get insurance? And that's not even if you have to go to the doctor, pay for a bunch of medications, et cetera. That alone, if you consider that in with the taxes, we're paying just as much, if not more. Yeah, I have four kids. I could not imagine. I go to the emergency department for my kids a few times a year. Like, I could not imagine having to pay copays and all that stuff on top of it. And I work for the healthcare system. Like, I make good money for my area. I can't, like, I don't want it. Like, and I also look at our vulnerable populations. And this is the thing that whenever people are like, we need private healthcare, I just ask them, so what about everybody else? If you can afford it, that's great. But what about everybody else? You think that the issue with homelessness is bad now? You think the issue with addictions is bad now? Just wait. Because now people can come in and get safe care in a controlled environment. They're not going to be able to do that if if you change it. Because if if private healthcare becomes more lucrative for for healthcare workers, you're going to have this mass exodus of people leaving the public sector. So let's say they do a two-tiered thing, which is what they always talk about when they talk about bringing private healthcare in. So Mm -hmm. what happens happens when there's a mass exodus of uh, MDs and, and nurses and stuff switching over to the private sector? And now the public sector is understaffed and, and, and underfunded. So like you're going to, yeah, it's going to be a two tier healthcare system of, of shitty healthcare and slightly better healthcare, but the, the, the private healthcare isn't going to be much better. Like people think. No, they have this little pipe dream that's fed to them by a radical right. That's telling them this is what you need. 
But in reality, it's going to make it worse. And the fact that I can look to the states and I can listen to people like Taylor here and I can hear what they're saying. And I'm like, I don't want that. Why would I wish that upon anybody? Yeah. Why? It just does. It doesn't make sense, especially when like for this podcast topic of being addictions related. Why would I wish that upon anyone? Because you're only going to make these problems that the communities are already fighting about even worse. Because fentanyl is not expensive to get on the streets. Like, honestly, it is not, it's not expensive. It's a couple of bucks. So if I wanted a safe, controlled substance, I'm going to go to a hospital. But if I can't get into a hospital, where am I going to go? Yeah, especially when, when withdrawal makes a person so desperate. Oh, yeah. In the end, it comes down to... They're going to do whatever they yeah, can. In the end, it comes down to a lack of compassion for... Um, marginalized communities and people who are vulnerable um whether it's people who are unsheltered and and unhoused people who use drugs people who have substance use disorders all of that right if we have compassion for those people we understand community-based approaches to treatment then you know if we have that then it shouldn't be a problem it, but that's based on compassion and empathy. And, and that, in the end, is the thing that's fundamentally lacking. For I have a question. What, this will be the last one. Um, so there are people that work with these marginalized communities, you know, and, and, and I think there is a fatigue mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. happen where you think, well, why just stop? Like, we've given you this many options. Like, just stop. Why? Why do we have to keep helping you? You know, how, how does one overcome that, that caregiver yeah, I think, um, fatigue? Compassion fatigue is, is real. And it I think that's fun. something worth, um, worthy of discussion. And that could be an entirely separate topic. But um, I think, you know, and, and, I, and I would, no, I would love to. I, I know. <laughs> Spring it on your last Because I think that's, a, that's a, a, a really, really important point. And I think. I think there are a few things. One is that we have to understand that empathy and compassion are different. And empathy is being able to place yourself into another person's experience to, um, you know, to make that connection um, and to feel for that person with that person. Um, Compassion is, can be come from a place of sort of an endless well like you don't have to you don't have to drive yourself to be in that person's situation um to be able to have compassion for that person i don't know if that that distinction makes sense there's um Mm -hmm. there's yeah you don't constantly have to you put yourself in someone's shoes just to to model your empathy can be exhausting having empathy can be exhausting feeling like i put myself in your position i understand where you're coming from i have felt for you and i cannot continue to do that absolutely i believe that that is something that you know we that we should be recognizing too and we don't always have to have empathy in the sense that that can run out but compassion doesn't have to. Um, there's a there's a really w- sort of famous book within healthcare, within medicine, particularly in the United States, called The House of God, um, 
written by the psychiatrist mm-hmm. under the pseudonym Samuel Shem. This is back in the 70s, but he has a list of 13 rules of the house of God. And one of them is the patient is the one with the disease. And I reflect on that a lot because I think of every time I have felt sort of, you know, what we colloquially refer to as burnout or compassion fatigue, um, just remembering that like, you don't have to always put yourself in the position of the patient and feel for them and with them, but you should have compassion for them regardless. It can just be part of your practice without thinking about it too much. How you sort of center and ground yourself. Like you are a person who has compassion. You can continue doing that. If you feel like your well is running dry, then you need to do some of your own self-care to be able to have compassion for yourself and others. Um, but but um, empathy can be the draining part. Mm-hmm. And I think recognizing that distinction, you know, I, I, I had to sort of be coached on this when I was sort of early in my, in my training in healthcare, I, I like felt that sort of sense of burnout. Um, and I had somebody explain this to me and actually really helped me reframe my mm-hmm. experience with in providing patient care. Like I can have compassion for people. I don't have to. Yeah. I don't have to drain myself. That's certainly reframe mine. I just want to say as a new, new healthcare worker, um, I do feel for people and, um, I, I guess I don't have to always go there. I can just incorporate compassion into my practice by a default. One of the ways know? we sort of get lost is that we we sort of forget that and we put empathy in the place of compassion and it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so I, 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 I think that's an important, that was really important for me um, when I was in training to sort of recognize that. Um, and I think, but I do, I very much do um, understand and I can empathize with people when they say we've, you know, we've given enough opportunities. I cannot continue to have empathy for this person. I get that. And that's fine. You can still approach them with compassion, even if you don't, have, yeah. if you, even if you don't feel that empathy. I like that. <laughs> I really like that. That is a wonderful note to end on. I think. <laughs> Any any last little thoughts, Emma? (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to like come up with something after that, but yeah, no, it's um, (laughs) Taylor's right. You just need to show kindness to people, right? We are all humans, regardless of where our cup is in terms of it's full or not. You don't have to meet every single person on the same level that they're at. Just as long as you're showing that basic level of kindness to people, like you'll be able to change worlds by just doing that. And that's something yeah. that right now healthcare and humanity honestly need. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, you guys. I'm so happy you guys decided to be on my podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think we covered some really interesting topics today. Thank you so um, much. So Thank you so that, much for having me. I us. will let you go on with your day. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>